Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight, we have the full regular panel, plus a member of the old regular panel. First, we welcome friend and co-host, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. Uh, very happy to be here, even though there's a couple of really awesome football games going on right now. Yeah, we are missing overtime in the uh, Den- Denver-Baltimore uh, game, so I hope you understand how much we love you. Well, you, 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 you're missing it. I have it on my monitor right in front of me. So Yeah, if you hear Troy and I make a hoot, that'll be... That'll be- okay. Uh, and, of course, the other voice you just heard there was a uh, friend and freelance writer, Julian Murdoch. Hello. And, of course, we're also joined by Dr. Bruce Garrick. Yeah, hello gamers. And finally, your barista for this evening, Tom Check. How about those uh, ducks? Mighty ducks. Mighty or otherwise. Are they still an NHL team? That might be semi-topical, actually, by accident. Is there still an NHL? There is, once again. There, there's sort of an NHL, a, a bastardized, limping, lame <laughs> NHL. And uh, we can all look forward to Rivalry Week, uh, whenever that's going to be, as soon as Overlord Batman uh, gets his head out of his ass. And I haven't understood a single thing you guys are talking about yet. <laughs> uh, labor law. Uh, so anyway, uh, the reason we've all gathered together is to talk about uh, some of our favorite games from 2012, some trends we may have noticed uh, over the course of the year, and then kind of what we're all sort of looking forward to uh, this year. It's it's a bit of a grab bag of topics, but it's you know a chance for us to all touch base and uh, sort of compare notes over what was a, I thought, a pretty terrific 2012 and uh, what promises to be an exciting uh, 2013. Uh, so apologies if there's a little bit of repetition between this and... Uh, the previous show you've listened to with um, Soren Johnson and John Schaefer and Dave Heron, uh, because I'm sure that a lot of the games that came up last week, chances are will come up one more time here. Uh, so, Tom, as our as our guest this evening, I guess, uh, I, I kind of want to hear from you what was, uh, you know, when you look back on 2012, what game do you look back most fondly on uh, from the strategy side of things? Oh, let's see. Gosh, if I were to single out one game, uh, and I'm sure you, I presume you guys talked about this, uh, I was really happy to see how much board game influence went into XCOM. Uh, and that kind of, for me, is one of the great trends we saw last year, is that I think more designers, as board games become more popular, are resorting to this board game elegance in how they express certain computer and video games. Uh so I think XCOM is kind of a, a brave standard for where strategy games are heading, what kind of influences we're seeing in them. Uh, and it was certainly one of my 10 favorite games of last year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's hard for me to think of much other than XCOM. Certainly by hours played, it, it, it's the strategy game of 2012 for me. Yeah, you people are crazy. <laughs> Uh-oh. As far go. as I know, only one game was released in uh, 2012, and that was Battle of the Bulge for iOS. Which, which by the way, <laughs> I, would, I would like to say also exhibits that same sort of board game simplicity yes. or, or a more Euro-oriented board game. I mean, that as a guy who board games have been bouncing off me for the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years, uh, it was awesome to finally just receive one dead center right in the middle of the chest it was like a fatality. I mean, that I, I love that game, uh, and and it's a you know it's a war game, but it doesn't have the typical war game trappings that have that I've been resistant to for so long. So uh, yeah, I, I, great point, Bruce. And I think of that as another example of uh, this sort of board game streamlining that we're seeing in some computer games. So so Bruce, there were no games before December. Uh, I can't. Oh, there was one. Yes, you're right. There was one game that came out. I think it came out in May, 
and uh, it was called uh, Conflict of Heroes Awakening the Bear. And as far as I know, those are the only two games that came out last year. Board game influence, by the way, in Conflict of Heroes Awakening the Bear. You could you can see your there dice, you can see your tiles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, is it even influence, or is it a, a direct translation of that to uh, PC? Well, I'm not. I, I haven't played the original game. It's it's a. I mean, it's a direct port, uh, pretty much. But okay. uh, I mean, I think that the thing that Tom is pointing out is is really true. And 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 what I'm glad about in terms of war games is that, uh, you know, what. Tom is describing as this great, you know, uh, sort of sweet spot uh, war game design is really what uh, war games were, gosh, just 20 short years ago, uh, 15 short years ago, you know, in, in a board game format. And I think it really, computers really took board games to a place that, I, you know, I'm not sure we all wanted them to go. I mean, it's nice that they did, but it sort of excluded everything else. And, um, you know, the games that were bouncing off of Tom were probably bouncing off of them for a good reason because they were so, uh, you know, just tailored to the computer interface and the, you know, multiple different levels that you had to dig through to find all sorts of details. But, I mean, if you if you put Battle of the Bulge out on a, on a dining room table, which, by the way, you can do since uh, it's available as a PDF, for the uh, Kickstarter subscribers and uh, or Kickstarter backers, and the LLMN game will be as well. It's prototyped that way, also. It's not. I mean, it's not just a, a beer and pretzels game. It's actually a. It, I, I would I would call it you know a low complexity but serious area movement uh, board game. And um, I don't know. But, I mean, it, we just, we've all been we've all been taught that war games are these weird hex things that have you know a thousand different menus, and that's kind of a shame. Well, but I, I have to call BS on you a little bit, Bruce, there, because mm. you, you actually, I mean, maybe, you, maybe you're maybe you not saying this, but you're holding up Conflict of Heroes, the, the Matrix port of the board game, as like a good game of last year. But when I brought up Conflict of Heroes like a year and a half ago as a board game, you called mm-hmm. it like wargaming for babies. Like you yes. just pissed off all over it as Mm -hmm. like overly simplified whatever but somehow you think it's actually good when they ported it to pc when it's exactly the same game yeah i think it's much actually much better on the pc than it is uh, why because you can do all that sort of stuff uh and and sort of analyze it and all that without having to have another player sitting there waiting for you to do it I want to back Bruce up on this too because I uh, I, I have this year alone bought uh, at least four board games based entirely on being first exposed to a port of them, uh, generally on the iPad, uh, and something like Conflict of Heroes, which I, I like as a computer game. I would have no desire to sit down and play the, the board game of that. Uh, but I think that's another uh, example of the, the board gaming influence that we're seeing. Uh, is there are these great iPad ports and great PC ports of games that might not necessarily be that you might even never get to play at a table if you have the analog version? Yeah, I don't know. I, I just look at things like that PC port and it makes me want to sit down with, you know, a glass of scotch and the guy I'm playing against the table, you know, across the table and argue about stuff and and really dig into it. And I find that uh, and I like both the board game and the war and the, you know, the computer game in that case. 
Um, and I actually prefer the the face-to-face experience. I get what you're saying. I mean, anytime you do one of these ports, um, you can play so many more games. It's a little bit like what happened when people started playing online poker. You can play so many more hands that you can actually develop your skill level and your understanding of the strategy much more quickly than you can if you're going to play one, you know, one game of poker every six weeks with a bunch of a bunch of guys. You're never actually going to get any better that way. But uh, to me, I find that they enhance both of those experiences. I mean, I, Tom, I'm right there with you. I mean, I played so much Lahav this year on my iPad, um, you know, and I have I have yet to actually play a, a game of Lahav in person. I don't I don't own a copy. I don't know anybody who does, and it's one of my favorite board games with quotes around it in the world. And that's one of them too. I mean, I don't recommend necessarily trying to play Lahav, the the board game. It is such a huge epic mess that takes forever. And that's one of them where I bought the board game and was like, oh, this is so much better on my iPad. I'm, I'm a little disappointed now. <laughs> well, the other thing I think is that you know, Julian, you're a little spoiled, and Tom is a, as well because you basically are, can play war, uh, board games all the time and have all sorts of different opponents. But you know. If if I got a chance right. to play a, a board game, I'm not going to break out Conflict of Heroes. I mean, I, there's better stuff that I'm you know going to use that limited, very limited amount of time to uh, to drag out and uh, and and sit through and enjoy. So, uh, Conflict of Heroes probably would never make it to the table uh, for me, whereas I can play it you know anytime I want on the computer. So that that's that's another consideration that I have. Fair enough. I also want to play on something that Bruce mentioned in in regards to another game that had a port released this year uh, that's, I think, better, way better than the actual tabletop version. Uh, Bruce, you and I went camping maybe a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and we brought along with us a copy of uh, Lost Cities, yes. which is a Rainer Kinesia design. All you need is a little deck of Super cards. Super yeah. Yep. Super simple and perfect for camping. You know, you don't have to break out a board or anything. Uh, there's almost never a time that I would break out Lost Cities if I'm with a buddy and we're going to play something. Like, we brought it because it could fit easily in a backpack. Uh, there's a great iPhone version of it, iPad version, iOS version of it, that adds all this cool new, like, like visual elements and this stat tracking and these different opponents mm-hmm. uh, that just takes this simple design and creates a full-fledged kind of computer game experience out of it. Uh, and I love seeing that sort of thing. A lot of people are doing this with some of Rainer Kinesia's designs in particular. Because there's so many of them. Yeah. yeah, well, that's that's true. <laughs> I, I, but that's, that's Tom's make a great point because that's an example of somebody taking uh, a game that was sort of has a limited scope and no frills uh, in a box and, re- and, and I mean, really expanding it without changing the rules just all the i think all the sort of frippery and frills to that game are really nice on the ios and it's it's still just a uh, i mean it's it's a throwaway game but it's it's uh you i think you appreciate it uh, a lot more uh, when you play it on the ipad and um yeah it's 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 a game that if you're over at somebody's house you're never going to say hey you know let's let's play lost cities you're going to play something uh something different and better. a real game yeah exactly yeah so, you know, you guys have been talking about board game influence, but, you know, actually a lot of what you've been talking about is board games. Uh, and I'd just like to turn back to XCOM for, for a moment, uh, you know, just to touch on that uh, board game influence uh, on XCOM a little bit more. Because I guess, you know, I, I sort of, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I see it, unless you just, by board game, unless you mean that board game has kind of become a shorthand for, uh, you know, simple rules, uh, fast play. Well, it's a tactic. It's a tactical miniatures game, right? I mean, if you were going to put that game on the table, it would effectively be Space Hulk. 
right? It, it is, you know, you it's I go, you go. You have units with very well understood and fairly simple statistics. You move them one at a time. I mean, it is effectively a tactical miniatures game that just happens to have been put into a computer format. Plus the geographic stuff, the very simple placement of satellites, placement of uh, aircraft. Uh, it's, you can see that in your head as a board game. Lots of stuff doesn't play it necessarily well on a board game. The research system doesn't work. But the whole geographic um, placement of your bases and your interceptor areas, plus the miniature areas, I, I can, you can definitely see if a board game influence that you wouldn't see as clearly in the original, where you could build bases in all these different places, like in a traditional old-fashioned strategy game, where the world was your palette. Um, because that you are much more confined and limited uh, in what you can do. Right. It, it's even the the overworld game. You know, the strategic game is even laid out like you could imagine a mat in front of you if you were playing. You know, some tile laying game, right? Where you'd be sitting here picking up this tile and putting down the I get more satellites tile. But that actually um, something that came up last week, and certainly I think is one of the recurring complaints about the game. Uh, is is that XCOM sort of has this uh, linear linear path, and uh, as as you said, Troy, the, the research and a lot of the progression stuff doesn't doesn't quite necessarily tie in. And I guess I'm just curious, um, you know, to what to what extent did you guys find that uh, you know um, a drag on the game, or or did you? Well, there's one of the like, weird things about XCOM. This is one of the trends that I've noticed, at least in mainstream coverage of strategy games. And one reason why I think XCOM really took off like big and got so many Game of the Year awards, not just that it's an excellent game, but that it tapped into this really growing sense in the gaming media and the gaming world that games are about, are about stories. Now, here on Three Moves Ahead, we've always been talking about the stories that come out of strategy games and the ones we write in our own heads. And this is why, you know, people love Crusader Kings and people loved FTL and people loved... Uh, XCOM because it let them do this. But XCOM, more so because it is such a clear, linear, obvious story with clear progression, clear plot points all the way through. Yes, you can stop and, you know, keep leveling up and get everyone really strong and everyone geared up and then go to the last great battle. But I think for a lot of people, that very linearity that's in repetition, that, you know, a lot of really hardcore gamers might resist so they go straight into Iron Man because they really love the challenge is in fact one of the secret weapons of XCOM. One of the reasons that it really works so well as a game for a much larger audience uh, than it might otherwise. And I, sort of drawing on what Troy is saying about that that strategic layer, uh, I, I feel like like you infer, Troy, that's something that like a lot of hardcore gamers really want to bang their heads against and, and sort of want to test whether or not there are different builds. And, and that's really not the way the game was designed. And in, in a way, I think that that's an asset. Like I think back to the way Creative Assembly originally did their Shogun games. This was a game about this cool tactical real-time combat, and then there was a, a, a simple strategic layer on it. Uh, I think one of the things that Firaxis did so well with XCOM is they simplified that strategic layer. You know, Bruce has written a lot about how so often, he writes more specifically about war games, but this applies in so many areas. Computers do things just because they can. You can make it more complex. You can have all these little things running under the background. You can put lots of stats in. The player doesn't necessarily have to track them. To Firaxis's credit, they, they cut away so much stuff 
uh, that a computer could normally do. And part of where they did that was the strategic layer. You know, when people think about XCOM, they don't remember, okay, I put a satellite up over South America, right. and then I got two engineers. They remember I was fighting this battle, and then a thin man appeared over here, and then my sniper took him out and saved the life of my shotgunner. Yeah. You know, and, and, and XCOM is so good at getting you, it's built to get you to those parts of the game Quickly, painlessly, uh, and if you don't have a lot of branching structures for how to get there, I don't really think that's something that they were trying to do. They just wanted to, and they just wanted to get you to that tactical combat. Uh, and and by the way, go, go ahead, Rob. Sorry. No, just I was going to say that's actually I hadn't thought of it in those terms in terms of delivering you quickly to sort of the meat of the game. But now that I think of it, like when I think about the experience of just sitting down and what shall I play tonight, you know? And with XCOM, it's really reliable. I know exactly what I want. And what I'm going to get within about five minutes of starting. Right, right. Yeah, and for me, actually, I didn't care all that much about the strategic layer of the game in the first place. And I was enamored. To me, the whole allure of that style of game was the... Uh, you know the laser squad nemesis version right where where you're really just about that right. that tactical interplay i mean i love those kinds of games and so the simplification of the strategic layer just kind of got some stuff out of the way i didn't give a crap about all that much anyway and yeah. let me get to the juicy part i wanted and and more importantly when i talk about board game influence i'm not even thinking of the strategic layer i'm thinking of that tactical layer where instead of time units you just have two actions per each dude like that's such a simple like piece oriented mechanic like every piece just does two things that's it period yep. no no if ands or buts and now there are if ands or buts with the skill tree uh but that that's this great bit of simplicity that i remember you know i i wanted my time units when when i was thinking about a new xcom it wasn't until i played it that i realized oh i can have a board gamey xcom and this can work great I I agree that the um th that sort of board game concept uh, I mean I I I'm just going to reiterate what Tom said but I mean the 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 feel the difference uh you know people say well the you know the first XCOM had a very uh, uh board gamey uh sort of tactical combat and it actually didn't it was it, you'd never have in board games it, it would be impossible to have maps not impossible but it would be very cumbersome to have maps that big and have line of sight that was you know that long you, you just, it just wouldn't happen i mean the only game that you do that with would be advanced squad leader and you know how many people play that so um you know reducing the map size turning it into a into a you know single basically a single screen or uh tactical problem is a very board game solution and um uh, i'm i'm glad that they went that way so just you know speaking for myself actually in terms of things that i in, really enjoyed last year and kind of hope continues into this year uh <clears throat> and this ties in xcom as well is uh i feel like in the last year we were really uh, kind of lucky with a lot of cool expansions and add-ons to already good games uh you know i really thought uh highly of the rise of the samurai uh fall of the samurai expansion for shogun 2 uh you know the red turn uh dlc for uh, unity of command i thought sins of solar empire rebellion uh was just absolutely you know positively one of my favorite uh games of the year and, and so I'm, I'm kind of hoping that, you know, that Firaxis will also treat XCOM to that same uh, sort of – that same sort of post-release support and, and well, that we can look forward to – yeah. <laughs> that, that ship kind of sailed. <laughs> I mean they, uh, that, that – I forget. Slingshot? What was the name of the, the first round of DLC? Yeah, the S Slingshot was the first DLC, which was about a few missions and you get some super 
heavy soldier, and that's kind of it. And there's a new DLC that came out last week or the week before. Which is actually a patch, though. Isn't that just a patch? Like, I, you, they're not charging for well, it. They're just no, enabling no, those. But it's, it, no, it's free It's DLC. also not a patch, though. It was... It was um, uh, so modders had found uh, those, those options for, I guess you'd call it like a New Game Plus uh, approach to XCOM, where you could activate or turn off, depending on what sort of game you wanted, all these different um, you know variables that you could add to XCOM. And that had been disabled for the release version, because uh, I guess it just hadn't been finished. And now it is finished, and so they released it uh, for free and just patched it into the game. So a little bit of patch, a little bit of expansion. Well, the reason I would only the, the reason I would harp on the semantic difference is is there is DLC, there is paid DLC for XCOM, yeah. and this is not that. Uh, you know, I, I love those little options. By the way, I love what they're thinking there, and it certainly makes me want to play again. But they've already they've already released really terrible DLC for it. Uh, so it, yeah. hopefully, you know, in a way, Rob, I, I sort of like, well, the jury's still out. We'll see. You know, they've got one minus, one plus. Let's see where the third uh, DLC lands. Uh-huh. But I, I'm glad you mentioned DLC, Rob, because for the most part, I, I was kind of disappointed in a lot of the DLC that came out this year. Um, you know, Gods and Kings for Civilization Five. I, I know we're all, we all have sort of very different, we have some different opinions on Civ Five, but I really didn't feel that that did that game any favors. Um, there, there was a, a, a decent Dota clone called, uh, well, not decent. There was a Dota clone that I didn't like called Guardians of Middle Earth, uh, and they're re- they're releasing all these little two dollar characters for that based on the Hobbit movie. Uh, that's Monolith and Warner Brothers. I think that's terrible DLC. I, I actually thought that was a surprisingly good game, and it may just be a battle of low expectations, but. Um, Jeff Kanata turned me onto that and we played a ton of it. And, you know, as a hardcore League of Legends guy, it, to me, it was just a great, uh, you know, a great game to sit down there on the couch and play sitting next to my son. So I, I don't know. I thought that I actually was intrigued by that. Now I, I obviously don't think it's going to have any legs. Um, but given how bad it could have been, I actually thought it introduced a bunch of new, interesting ideas. Um, I, I think, you know, some of it has to do with whether or not you're, uh, you know, a believer in a certain franchise about whether or not you think that the DLC is going to be, you know, worth it. I, you know, I, I'm with Rob on on uh, Sins of a Solar Empire. I mean, those guys, to, to my mind, can almost do no wrong at this point. Well, my my problem with uh, with Guardians of Middle Earth is actually one word, uh, and that word is awesome knives. You know, there, there's 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 a really good uh, Defense of the Ancients. Oh, it's clone. Just awesome. Yeah, it's and great. and it's a great way to play that on consoles. And you know, all that Guardians of Middle Earth offers is a kind of an approximation of League of Legends on a console. And you know, it has almost no Middle Earth flavor. You know, if you're expecting that. Um, but but some of the other DLC that I felt was kind of questionable was. Uh, did any of you guys play that? Uh, that's that Aztec thing for Crusader Kings two, or the Aztecs conquer oh, uh, Europe, or Sunra- Sunset Invasion. Sunset Invasion, no. Like I, yeah, I, I did. No. That, that seemed, well, did you like that? I mean, I love sort of the I liked it a fancifulness lot. of it. Okay, so that I didn't know if that was like a plus or minus DLC for for this year. Okay, so uh, like what I really what I really liked about it, aside from the the sheer weirdness of it, right? Because uh, I mean, it's base. It, it's it's like. Uh, Harry, you know, what's that guy, Harry Turtle Dove or whatever, you know, someone comes back and delivers AK-47s to Robert E. Lee, you know, shit like that. Um, this is this is similarly like Bizarro Land, uh, you know, Crusader Kings. But there's a couple things I really enjoy. Um, you know, I, I guess the, the, the main thing I, I really dig, though, is just um, you're so used to 
the action in Crusader Kings happening a certain way across the map. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it, it, like action moves from Central Europe out to the West or, or it moves from France uh, either inland or there's action toward uh, England. But like having sort of this, this, this new um, disruption just sort of appear uh, along, along the co- coast of Europe kind of – Throws a lot of the normal uh, gameplay I expect from a uh, you know grand strategy uh, game set in Europe. Throws that right out the window, uh, and so it's kind of like you know you're seeing this map for the first time. And that was one of the intentions uh, when they designed it was you know that the, the the danger is always on Eastern Europe. That's where the Mongols right. come. That's where the Turks come. The, the thinking was well, there isn't a historical threat coming from the West. Why don't we just make one up? And have some fun with it, and let's see if we can make our our, our forums explode, um, which they kind of did, uh, and just make something kind of crazy, and, and just play with the idea of pressure coming from the west, just as there's pressure coming from the east in the 13th century, and there's always pressure coming from the east. Uh, the Russians and Poles really get it really hard uh, in Crusader Kings, um, and that and they've had they had two really I think great ex- expansions uh, this year in. Uh, uh, sort of Islam, which opened up the uh, Muslim states for play, and Legacy of Rome, which you know did a lot of did some stuff with the Byzantines, but really did actually its biggest improvements were just core changes to the game, in making management of vassals easier, in uh, giving this retinue idea uh, for having a base small army through, and they have another expansion coming out. Well, when people listen to this podcast, it'll be Monday. So coming out on Monday, they have the Republic expansion coming, which will, which from what I'm reading is just going to be an entirely new way of playing the game because you're playing a family within a Republic. So even if you don't control the Republic, you can still be a merchant family fighting for trade within it, um, which is a, once again an entirely new way of playing this game. And so they're really trying to build this huge palette of medieval Europe one expansion at a time, which has some problems because it means you have to keep learning new rules uh, all the way through. Uh, but it's they are the, the quality is still there. Uh, it's still remarkably stable. Um, and I know they have some more ex- announcements coming uh, in 2013 that my job forbids me from saying anything about. Uh, but there's uh, Sunset Invasion is the one I did not put a lot of time into because uh, it's Crusader Kings is sort of one of my c- 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 comfort games. When you talk about XCOM, how you know what you're going to get. Um, I, the thing about like with Crusader Kings is I don't know what I'm going to get, but it's, it's like a like a roguelike. It's a that unpredictability is the comfort for me, not the predictability you would get from say XCOM or Civilization. Those are different kinds of, of comfort. Before games. we get entirely away from DLC, I also want to point out uh, Paradox offered, and I haven't played this, but I've heard great things about it, and I'm psyched to try it. Uh, they offered some DLC for uh, Warlock, uh, that fantasy turn-based game, which basically adds mm-hmm. a zombie apocalypse <laughs> to Warlock. Uh, I think it's called Armageddon. Really? Uh, yeah, so uh, it, it similarly, I think it also changes up the overarching game structure, kind of like the Sunset Invasion thing does. Well, and that, that also brings to mind, I think this was a great, great year, arguably the best year since the release of Masters of Magic for turn-based fantasy strategy games. Because we had uh, we had Warlock, we had uh, Conquest of Elysium 3, we had Fallen Enchantress, 
And then we have this really weird dark horse at the end of the year. I don't know if any of you have gotten a chance to play this, but there's a really, really good, very, I would call it sim Taxi uh, game called Eador Genesis. I don't even know if I'm saying the name correctly. Eador, Eador, whatever, Eeyore, call it uh, Eeyore Genesis, um, which is a great turn-based uh, fantasy strategy game. So we had four great, uh, we had four of those this year that were really good. Boy, I don't know. So I have not, I have not played uh, Conquest of Elysium, uh, much to my shame, because we actually covered it and uh, quite favorably as well. So I, I feel a little bit uh, crappy on that score. But uh, I guess you know my my question to you, Tom, is you know is it is it a banner year for for that sort of game in part just because it's been uh, you know that that field sort of been lying fallow for a number of years prior. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we, we definitely have not had, you know, turn-based fantasy, I don't think. I mean, we had uh, uh, before, uh, Fallen, um, before Fallen Enchantress, there was like Elemental, and before then, what was the last? It was Fantasy General. Yeah, I guess you have to go back yeah. that far. But it was just odd in one year to get four of those. Which one's the best one? Uh, I'm, I'm really leaning towards Eeyore Genesis, Eador. Yeah. yeah. Although I love, I mean, yeah. as much as I love the personality and the the right, as much as I love the creativity that goes into Conquest of Elysium, um, I feel that Eador Genesis does some really cool new things uh, that that actually tie into something else I would like to bring up. Uh, so this, let's get serious a moment because this is kind of sad. Uh, I think it's time to say goodbye to an old friend. Uh, and I think that 2012 was the death of the Hex. Oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, here no, we go. No just way. no. All nope. right. Let me, let me make my case, and uh, you know, maybe there will be a link at the bottom of this podcast to an incendiary blog post I will write about it at quarter to three. Uh, but we had, you know, the Hex went through a long, painful struggle with the design, the AI, and Civilization V. Uh, and I think last year... It, it, we can finally put it to bed and replace it with something else. Uh, the octagon. No, well, so Bruce, you, you know, Bruce actually accidentally brought this up. He's the one that brought this to my attention. He probably doesn't even know he did this. Uh, when, when Bruce is not busy ruthlessly subjecting games to things like like history and science and math, that kind of stuff, he'll he'll occasionally say something that's almost poetic or that almost has some sort of poetic insight. Um, and one such thing happened during a conversation about Battle of the Bulge. Now, you guys had a great podcast on that. And, and, you, and if you listen to it, you get Julian doing cool things like comparing it to glass blowing. You know, uh, there's, there's, something, there's something very poetic and artistic <laughs> about what they do. Now, on the other hand, Bruce writes these like 3,000 word articles involving charts and statistics about it. Uh, but... At one point during a conversation about Battle of the Bulge, Bruce said something about how every territory, because it's an area-based, there's no hexes here, they're all little uh, area territories that are patched together. Bruce said something about how every territory has personality. Now, he was kind of wrong, because I can think of two of them in the game that have no personality. I have never heard anyone yeah. say anything interesting about, I think it's called Bouillon and uh, Charville. Mezier, whatever. There's these little territories in the southwest corner. No one will ever care about. They have no personality. Oh, those are the best territories. They're so. They're, they're, 
Bruce is bringing the deep They're cuts. So neglected. <laughs> I'm sure you could mathematically point out something about them, but I've never heard them mentioned in any. Those never come into play. Who cares about them? They're only in there to be, to make the game fit the iPad screen. By the way. <laughs> okay. But what what I feel is that one of the reasons I really like Battle of the Bulge versus Hex-based war games is the amount of personality that these different territories have, uh, and we see that it's one of the reasons that I really like Eador Genesis over these other turn-based strategy games because it's a it's a territory-based game. The map is this quilt this sort of patchwork quilt of territories, and each territory has a certain race, a political type, a type of terrain. It has its own name. It has different... It, each territory has a list of quests you can go on. You can find resources. Each territory has these three precious slots for upgrades. But I love what that does to the narrative in my head about the strategy game that I'm playing, and it does it in a way that you can't really do with hexes, uh, I feel. So I'm ready to put the hex so, to bed. So you're saying that the the future is freeform maps. Oh uh, well, you know, think of di- like Dominions, for instance. You know, Dominions had great hex uh, territory-based stuff. Uh, Conquest of Elysium's one of the weak points of that game is the mapping of that. Uh, I feel right, but the 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 flip. So I agree with you that that I think freeform maps are more interesting, but they also require a lot more of the designer because you're basically saying. You, you're going to make a map that you can use exactly once, whereas a hex-based system is much more, you know, every hex is fungible for another hex. You just, you know, regenerate it. Now, you map. say that, Julian? What do you um, mean exactly once? Yeah, yeah, because I, I think of, of the many times I've played Battle of the Bulge, that is one of the best bits of level design in any video game I've ever played, I feel. Uh, and I've used it many more times it's a great, once. It's a single great map, but it gets... I, I find that, you know, it would be interesting to play on a different map. Once well, you'll have LLL Main coming right? out. It, next versus <laughs> doing a procedurally generated map, say, in Civilization. Well, I, I think that the the issue is that the game, if you make... I mean, it's a different design sort of strategy, or it's a, it's a different design challenge, but, I mean, I, I, I see exactly what Tom is saying. I mean, the the, the, the map... It has to be constructed in such a way that every piece fits together in a certain way. Now, I I think that it's kind of it's a little uh, uh, sort of dismissive of Tom to say that uh, there's a lot of personality in Hex X21 because you know con- compared to W13, uh, I think they're very different. But um, but the the map that uh, I think does that in board games. Have you guys played Small World? Because it's ah, certainly exactly. on, the, uh, on the iPad. So yeah, I think sure. I think that's I think that's that's exactly the kind of thing that Tom's talking about. I mean, every little territory in Small World, uh, I think, has its has its own little personality, and that's a map that uh, that only gets used once, uh, as far as I know, unless it's in some other game. Um, but right, but my point is that you're 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 making a game where you're always going to play the same map. I mean, compare that to something like Memoir Forty Four, where you're playing a hundred different maps on that. But that's board. actually not entirely true, Julian, because Eator Genesis is. Uh, randomly generated maps. It's just the approach of having a self-contained territory with a set of, of stat, with basically with personality, like Bruce described Battle of the Bulge. You know, that's random. That's different every time. Uh, so it doesn't have to be a single map. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's cool. I, I, boy, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know. This almost this almost seems like you know it, it's like 2001 or something. You're saying you know now that we've got third person shooters, I think we can put our friend first person to bed. Like I, I just I, I don't know. Like 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, hexes are... Well, okay, okay, hold on, hold on. Certain... Just to be fair, I'm, I'm just throwing out an incendiary headline yeah. before I make I my point. The hexes are going them clicks. anywhere. Yeah, exactly. this is not fidget, my friend. It, That's not going to fly here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that was low. <laughs> well, I just want to point out that uh, I, I brought this up uh, in 2000 in uh, a column that I wrote in Computer Gaming World in which I predicted that combat mission uh, would destroy hex-based wargaming. Uh, because I thought that after people play combat mission, there's no way that anybody could possibly uh, go back to squares on hexes and moving them around when you could have, you know, you could order a tank that looked like an actual, you know, Tiger One and put it on top of a hill and then, you know, have it shoot at some kind of, uh, you know, T-34. I thought that was just, nobody would ever want to do anything uh, with hexes again. And of course, I was completely and utterly wrong. Um so plus the uh, I think the hex has done very well in uh, 2012 since it got uh, uh, the uh, War in the East expansion uh, Dawn of the Danube, which uh, uh, I think while we uh, I think we had a podcast about that, which didn't uh, didn't look too kindly on some aspects of it. I thought that uh, I mean I think War in the East is just a fantastic game, even more so now that I've played another uh, 2012 release called um, Decisive Campaigns uh, Case Blue. Uh, so, uh, although I, I, that game's that interesting, but I just, it, make, uh, it just makes me, it makes me appreciate more what War in the East has really done. Uh, and you might end up reading something about that in a future, uh, where future, do tell. Uh, it's hard to say where that could be. It could be uh, on uh, my new website, www.ilovewarintheeast.com, or uh, maybe maybe Tom will post it for me. Uh, can, uh, can war games get better subtitles? Because between Case Blue and oh, Red man. Turn and uh, what is it? Uh, waking <laughs> you know Up the, the Bear. What, Red, turn, Red Turn and Unity of Command are actually like, at least they don't sound quite like everything else. Because like Unity is kind of a weird thing in a war game, or war game thing and Red Turn. Uh, you know, what the hell is a red turn? Those are good questions. As opposed to, like, you know, fire in the east, uh, you know, desert on fire. You know, stuff, just all that stuff, you know, um, conflict of blank. So, you know, that's... Tide of iron. Yeah. But one thing I do, you know, not, not to, you know, before we move on from your point, Tom, I, I, I think the way I'd put it is, uh, and this is something I've been thinking about perhaps since I first started seeing, um, you know, the age-odd strategy games as well. Is is I do like, although I think they actually kind of secretly disguise the fact they're still kind of using hexagons, uh, just irregular hexagons. Like everything links to six different territories. I think in most cases, if you look I mean, yeah, at those maps, there's but, still big maps, and there's still yeah. I mean, it's just the hexagons are bigger. You can fit more things in them. Yeah, right. And they can change the the map flows a little differently than it does in a normal uh, hex based war game. And and I think you know to to your point, I I do like the idea that. Uh, you're, you're seeing more of a departure from this idea that, you know, there's almost like this, whether it's hexes or squares or whatever, there's almost this default idea that the map should be made up of these little subunits. And then occasionally, like in some place on one of these subunits, there's going to be something of significance. Uh, and, and I kind of like the idea of, you know, sort of for for certain types of games, getting away from that and making, um, you know, making the map the territory. I guess is the you know the way I'd say it like where every you know every part of that playing surface um, is you know a, a relevant important element and not just space between two things that matter. 
And Fallen Enchantress, by the way, has a, uh, you know, it's mostly, I don't know if they're hexes or, I think they're just squares. They're squares. Um, but they, they do a really cool thing, though, where they have, and they even have a name for them, not modules, but they're these basically big patches of pre-built territory that will load up into a random map. And they have a particular boss and a particular type of terrain and units and, like and behavior. or something. Yeah, it's yeah. got some name like that. But it's that same idea of let let the designers create something with personality and put it into a strategy game where normally the players have to impose personality by building cities and moving their units around. That, that's kind of what I'm getting at, is that I love seeing that kind of personality loaded into games that have previously just been crazy open, go wherever you want, do whatever you want, you know, bring your, put your, impose your own personality onto the map. You know, Troy, I actually wanted to, uh, you know, hit you about uh, sort of if there was any game in 2012 that struck you in particular and why that would be, uh, and if there were any trends you noticed uh, over the course of the year. I mean, the trends that we've, I mean, the board gaming things had mentioned, and I mentioned in passing the uh, importance, uh, the rising importance of people noticing uh the rising importance for of uh, of 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 narrative of storytelling in the design of strategy games, people's appreciation of them. You saw, I mean, Fallen Enchantress. Uh, one of the great things about it was finally it felt like a fantasy world. Finally, it kind of made sense uh, with the use of sovereigns and heroes and these biomes, which plopped into the maps, actually made it feel like, wow, I'm part of a story, um, and you could actually feel like you're a part of a myth or a legend. And Crusader Kings, too, of course, widely celebrated uh, for uh, the Game of Thrones-ish uh, schemings and civil wars and the like. Um, and uh, the board gaming stuff's been mentioned and uh, some of the art stuff. One thing, um, the big trend uh, from 2012, and it's going to be going forward into 2013, I think, quite strong, uh, is, of course, Kickstarter. And that's been big in all games. Um, but we're going to see, I think, uh, we've, I mean, in strategy gaming, it's only just starting, I think, uh, to really get its claws in with you know, Planetary Annihilation. Uh, what we saw it with uh, Battle of the Bulge was a huge Kickstarter success. I mean, we had Endless Space, um, FTL. I mean, there's a debate on last week's show whether FTL is a strategy game or not, but most websites are considering it a strategy game, so whatever. Um, so we have these these games which were kickstarted. We can have uh, the strategy market, which has not been served very well by um, AAA publishers. And many indie developers have a really hard time getting their game to market, testing to see whether there's an audience for it. And as we discussed on our Kickstarter show in the spring, Kickstarter allows developers to at least try to find that market. And at least try to find out if there are people interested in it. <laughs> it's not always easy, um, but I, I think that the success of those games um, shows that it is a good marketing tool. And we're going to be seeing, I think, a lot more Kickstarters uh, for strategy titles in the near future. Um, there's been already it's, it's a huge board game thing already, and I think uh, board games and uh, computer role playing games are the game worlds where it's uh, Kickstarter's had the, clearly the biggest 
And that yeah. trend, but we're going to well, that trend goes. But we're gonna. But I, well, but I just want to say that trend goes beyond Kickstarter as well, Troy, because I love what you're saying, and I think it's particularly relevant to those of us who dig strategy games. Uh, but that trend goes beyond Kickstarter. You can see it with iOS. You know, the, the fact that that's it's so accessible for a strategy game developer to just make something for the I, iPad. Um, it, yeah, but the problem, but the problem with iOS, of course, is getting noticed. Right, right. But it's still it, it's a it's the fact that strategy games aren't necessarily under the same hegemony from their publishers that they used yeah. to be. Uh, and another example, uh, Illwinter did not publish Conquest of Elysium through Matrix. I think they went to Desura is kind of like self-publishing, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they just did that route. Uh, and I think Steam's Greenlight, we might see more direct to the consumer right. things for strategy games. So that Kickstarter, you're absolutely right, Troy. That's at the vanguard. But that's part of a larger trend that goes beyond Kickstarter that I love as a strategy gamer. Yeah, and I just want to say that I think that for for I think there's always going to be uh, an ability for uh, certain types of games to get. I, and I don't know how Battle of the Bulge got uh, publicized, but I think it had uh, a very good word of mouth um, before it came out. And so I don't think that with iOS there's a there's a there's a problem getting noticed because I still think that the number of games that come out that really serve the gamer market rather than the, you know, my pig shot down the Death Star market <laughs> is... Yes. It, I mean, it, you're, you're, if somebody really puts out a good, like, for example, uh, like a 4X space game on the iPad, it, people will know about it. P- the, the, the people are out there to, um, to, to make that known. I think that uh, uh, every time, the, the, of course, the board game... Uh, community is it keeps people very well abreast of what's coming out on the uh, on the iPad. I was I was interested to see a great game, Stone Age, that um, uh, I think just came out on the iPad. I only found out about it by reading uh, Tom's website, but um, uh, I think that that kind of stuff people will will hear about it, uh, and um, uh, it's it's the uh, it's it's a, simply a function of the fact that there just there aren't that many real Gamer type, serious, interesting strategy games out there. They're they're going to get noticed. Uh, one one genre where you you really can't get out from under publishers because it tends to require greater production values. I'm curious how you guys felt 2012 treated real time strategy games. Well, there weren't many, were there? There, there was <laughs> what, war what game. Was there? there was war game. European escalation. Yeah. Uh, which is great. Yeah, which it was is terrific. Great. And, yeah. uh, that came out of Focus Home, uh, who are, uh, I think, pretty serious about making inroads into, into PC gaming. Uh, they're, I don't, they're not a major publisher by any means, but uh, it, it looks like they, they've done uh, pretty well by uh, Yugen Systems. Although, I say that, but is Airland Battle still going to be with them? I don't know. I don't know. But yeah. by the way, uh, Wargame European Escalation was another example of a game that got some great most almost entirely, if I'm not mistaken, free DLC over the course yes, of the year. Tons, uh, lots they did of a great modes. job with post-release support. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think, I mean, the real-time strategy market. I mean, if you think about traditional RTSs. It's. I thought it was a it, great year. Cu- uh, you always think it's a great year for okay, RTS because so you because def- you define RTS sure. so broadly. But well, I do. I mean, I, I do. As far as traditional games, we had Wargame European Escalation. You guys have already mentioned Sins of a Solar Empire Rebellion. Right. And right, the funny yeah. thing is, I don't even think of that. Like Julian mentioned it in the context of an add-on, and I guess it is. It's kind of like a 
a reworking of, of the Sin's continuing Mac story. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to know how what to characterize Sin's expansions are. Rebellion, yeah, as, in particular, I think, is a tricky yeah. one because it's like where all it's where all their previous stuff kind of came together and was rationalized beautifully, and then there was also some game changing stuff that I thought worked really well. So it's hard to separate like the incrementalism inherent right. in it right. for the way that yeah. it also just you know as this layer of uh, you know spit and polished everything and all these you know, previously disparate mechanics suddenly, uh, you know, seem to interact much uh, more tightly and more interestingly than they did before. Right. And, and those guys, by the way, are going strong and we'll be seeing more about Sins of a Dark Age from them uh, in the coming months. Mm -hmm. um, so those two came out. Also, uh, I didn't try it, but did any of you guys play the Heart of the Swarm beta for StarCraft uh, 2? Yes, I've been playing it a bit. Yeah, but that, that, that's a beta. It doesn't count until it comes well, out. Well, no, but what, what it says to me, though, is I, I remember being worried about the, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but when they announced StarCraft II uh, and they announced it would be split into three parts, you know, I was concerned about the uh, Harry Potterization or the Twilightization or whatever. The Activisioning? Um, yeah. Or Miramaxing, if you want to think of a cinematic analog. But, yeah, exactly, splitting it into multiple releases. And I thought, oh, it's just going to be sort of rinky-dink episodic content. And it seems like Heart of the Swarm is really just reworking a lot of stuff in a game that it, it can't be easy to rework that. Um, so anyway, that, that was a beta, but that you're right, that's not until uh, next year. Uh, but I really also liked the revamping of uh, Age of Empires Online. I had tried a couple times to go back to Age of Empires in the year or so since we spoke about it, uh, and I, I kind of bounced off it because I, you know, that 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 uh, the Farmville stuff just kept oh, getting horrible. in the way, and the yeah, item yeah. stuff kept getting in the way. So, uh, what happened? That, like something changed for you this year that oh, uh, they, made it much more palatable to you? They completely ripped the guts out of that business model. You know, you could everything that you had to buy, you could pretty much earn by grinding if you wanted. It didn't change that it was a grind-based game and that you were playing to earn incremental upgrades. But the business model got a lot friendlier, and I think the content got more generous. And they added more options for multiplayer, for skirmishing. Um, but they completely revised that game. Um, so I think that was an example of a good RTS. Of course, then they ceased ongoing development, which is... Exactly, I know. <laughs> it's sort of, yeah. Uh, but if, now here we go where I'm gonna go ahead and, uh, like, RTSs to me also include things like, uh, tower defense games and, uh, Dota clones. So we, we talked about Guardians of Middle Earth. Uh, Awesome Knots, I, I think was a really good Dota clone. Uh, if you want to talk about tower defense games, there was a really cool one released early in the year called Unstoppable Gorg, where you, you rotated your towers on little orbital uh, patterns, kind of. Uh, Orcs Must Die 2 was a great action-oriented tower defense game that came out last year. A conventional tower defense game with this crazy long addictive RPG grind uh, for the iPad was called Defender Chronicles 2. Uh, that was last year. Uh, and we even saw on the iPad a couple of conventional RTSs. Uh, there was one called Autumn Dynasty, which had this... Well, Autumn, I was oh, going to yeah. say, Autumn Dynasty, I loved. Yeah, it had, a, it had a beautiful calligraphy sort of a style to it. Very yeah. much built for the iPad. Um, there was another great iPad RTS called Euphoria. Now, Euphoria's been around for a while, but the iPad yeah. version of Euphoria was considerably reworked. And I think those guys got... Some, some really unfair treatment by folks who just thought it was a straight-up port. Like, Euphoria HD on the iPad is a brand-new game, uh, and I, I loved that as, a, as an RTS player. 
So overall, I, I was very happy with the state, even though you're right, there, there are far fewer of them. But I think just to that, though, I think, you know, I, I would be wary of I'm not sure, like, if you if you were to say there was a heyday of RTS games, I'm not sure we were better served then because so many RTS games, uh, when the genre was really sort of a booming, growing space and we're sort of fighting to get in, a lot of that stuff was really forgettable. Um, you know, I mean, like, and I didn't I didn't I didn't play a lot of these games. Like, I never played like Crush, Kill and Destroy, uh, for instance, but like. You know what I mean? Like, I look back on that era, and it was like there were still only maybe two RTSs a year we really cared about. Right. Uh, and it sort of like seems this year we still got that. It's just now we don't have like too much direct to sort through. Exactly. And that's kind of how I feel about – that's kind of how I feel justified in saying, you know, RTSs aren't dead. There are fewer of them, but the ones that we get, there are some really good ones in there. Um all right, now Julian, you've been a little quiet. Um, so well, Tom's Tom's stealing all the thunder here. <laughs> well, that's you you you, uh, you do not host Tom Chick. You you invite Tom to hold court. Uh, that's that's why we love him. Uh, but I want to turn the spotlight onto you. And uh, you know what? You know what was a game that really stood out for you that we haven't mentioned? Maybe. Uh, and then, what are you looking forward to in the coming year? I mean, we've hit we've hit the high spots for me in strategy gaming. I spent just tons of time in XCOM. Um, I spent tons more time in Civ Five. Um, you know, the iPad definitely has been where I've spent the majority of my strategy gaming time. Certainly, if we're going to include any of the board game clones in that. Um, although honestly, I've played a ton of board games online. I mean, we went through a phase. I think it was the beginning of this year where we played like endless games of a few acres of snow. Oh my god! Yeah, online that was great. and um, and that's a huge amount of my strategy time is taking my turns in games like that. Um, you know, whether it's uh, you know Hero Academy on the iOS or or any other number of these asynchronous turn based games, that's become you know it's replaced what play you know play by mail did for me back in the eighties. Right, it's it's a huge part of my gaming life at this point. We don't talk about it all that much because, frankly, it's you know once you've said, "Hey, this is this great game," you should you should play with it. Um, what else do you say? A lot of them are very simple. Um, and then this is the year that I got really addicted to League of Legends, twenty twelve. Yeah, and uh, and and not just from a playing the game, but from a from a sports level, right? From a watching professional oh, teams, watching the meta game evolve. Uh, you know, reading commentary, watching games. I mean, it, 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 at various points of the 2012, it took over my life. And uh, I have to hand it to Riot. They really do treat their game very seriously while at the same time not treating it too seriously, right? I mean, they, they go through an exhaustive process between seasons where they're changing the game and tweaking the game and adding content and, and listening to player feedback, analyzing their statistics to get it ready for sort of another competitive season. And it totally, totally hooked me in. So I'm curious to see how that evolves. Uh, you know, I know, Rob, you spent a lot of time focused on the competitive sports, esports scene last year. Um, but I, I think this is going to be a very big year on that front. Um, but when I look towards 2013, you know, I'm 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 curious what you know, Tom. You kicked this off by saying you were excited to see sort of board gaming more prominently in our strategy games, and then we spent a bit of time talking about Crusader Kings two and some of the pluses and minuses there. But we've got Europa Universalis coming out again this year, right? I mean, am I correct? That's a 2013 release. Yeah, that's fall 2013. 
Right. And they, I, I read a review or a preview of that where they were talking about how they're taking all the, the positive feedback they got over CK2 and bringing that into EU. That actually made me a little bit nervous. Did that make anybody else nervous? Why did it make uh, you nervous? Well, I, because honestly, I, I mean, I played a bunch of Creed of Sages Kings 2, and I often found myself saying, I kind of like the the Europe, Europa Universalist way of thinking about the world a little bit more. And that might just be I hadn't played all that much of you three in a while. I don't don't overthink that. Don't okay. overthink. Don't overthink. But they're they're not bringing families or court intrigue into Europa Universalis. For <laughs> as long as okay. it's got so. primogeniture in it, that's all I want. In my Europa Universalis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, part of what I loved about about Europa Universalis is that I mean, it's certainly not a simple game. I don't want to imply that, but it's straightforward in a sense. Um, and, and every, and it certainly could be very long and involved, but I always felt like I understood what was going on and I never felt blindsided. Um, if it's, which to me is, you know, for that kind of game was what I wanted. It felt like I was playing a big, complicated territory control board game in a sense. I, I, I sympathize with Paradox on this score though, because on the one hand, see, I actually want to be blindsided a little more in, uh, European Universalis. That's my, you know, my one lasting complaint, I think, when I walk away from EU3 is that, uh, in the course of a long game, there's just not enough curveballs thrown at me to really stop me, to really, you know, throw me off my game plan. Whereas, Crusader Kings 2, it was kind of like, you know, you know, you'd have a few successions go pretty much according to plan, and there'd be a lot of like consistency between. And then one something insane happens. Yeah, and then just yeah. all all hell would break loose. Either it didn't even have to do with you, or you had to like you know cut your cousin's throat or something. Something awesome would happen, and the whole game just turned over, and suddenly it was you know you're basically playing a new game, uh, you know, loosely tied back to your old one in a way that I really yeah, and- enjoyed. I, I guess I, I, I'm happy to have them live in separate worlds. I get what you're saying. I just, I, it's a little bit of the peanut butter and chocolate. Yeah, thing, yeah, I right? can see that. I can see I kinda, that. But, but if we're talking about stuff I'm looking forward to in 2013, I went through the list and that's it. That's the top of my list by far. All right. And uh, I guess, you know, I, I, Bruce, uh, have, we, have we hit you up with these, uh, with these pressing questions? Uh, I think the only game I'm looking forward to is the El Alamein uh, game from uh, Shenandoah. Which is the uh, obviously the um, the next John Butterfield designed iOS uh, war game that I'm sure I'm going to play to death. But I am looking forward to SimCity. Ah, uh, yes. yes, for sure. And R- R- Rome Total War too, because Shogun was so good. Uh, yeah, exactly. that's very true. I, I I forget to be excited about Rome. I think in part because I'm just. You know, I've sort of been taking Shogun for granted. You know, it's weird. Shogun 2, I think I enjoyed more than uh, any Total War in years. But then in a weird way, I also view Total War as this, like, sort of constant in, uh, you know, in the strategy sphere. And I almost, like, you know, I guess in a weird way, I just, uh, you know, I do take it for granted. And uh, I tend to forget that Rome's coming. And hopefully they cannot ruin it this time. Uh, we should know more in a few days, I think. Uh, THQ's assets are being auctioned off, and hopefully um, we'll know more about the fate of Company of Heroes 2 in the near future. Yeah, i, I got to figure it's going to come out, because by all accounts, it's pretty close to complete and releasable. Uh, so i I got to believe, you know what I mean? Like, someone's going to want to do something with a, a finished, fairly marketable game. Yeah, you just have to hope that somebody doesn't just be like, oh, it's almost done, release it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you you want you you hope somebody steps up and says, "Yeah, let's give them the extra $450,000 it takes for them to run it through QA." You know, I I got to say the whole the whole THQ saga has been kind of dispiriting for me in, in part like for all for all their flaws of, you know, as 
you know, as a publisher at times, I, I will say the the one thing that's still sort of uh, separated THQ from a lot of uh, other major publishers is that you could still find uh, cool, kind of risky, uh, different projects that weren't just uh, you know trying so hard to be mainstream marketable. I look at games like you know like anything from Relic, really, uh, like Metro. Uh, it, it sort of seemed like THQ was a major publisher where sort of um, you know. You know, not entirely like oddball, uh, you know, niche projects could get through, but it definitely seemed like a place that was a little more open to uh, creative thinking than a lot of uh, other major publishers. And I'm really sorry to see them go. And now they're dead. Thanks, Udraw. Casuals are the future. Actually, I think Julian's made that prediction many times. Julian killed Udraw. He yeah, killed THQ. You know, me. You, you know how much I love the Udraw. I do. I remember. I remember the the schoolboyish delight uh, as you unwrapped the Udraw I brought to your house, and uh, we played that one game with the drawing shit. Uh, that didn't and then work. it went uh, right into a bin in the basement. Yeah, pretty much the uh, the the ET of our time. All right. Well. Um, so I think that about covers uh, you know everything from last year, and uh, there's a lot a lot of stuff to look forward to uh, you know next year. I would I would have to say on balance, I looked at 2012 as really an astonishingly strong year for strategy games. Probably you know one of the best I've seen since I started doing this. And uh, you know 2013, you know we were talking about this last week. I think Dave Heron brought it up that it seems a little bit thinner uh, than last year, and that might be true. But I, I do think. Um, you know, no, that's that, that's crazy. I don't know. Last year was really good, but if, if it does if it does appear thinner, I think it's only because you're comparing it to a really strong year. I think 2012 was really special. Well, and also, wouldn't you have said the same thing, Rob, in you know January of 2012? <laughs> yeah, because we don't. We, there, there are going to be a lot of surprises that are going to take us. That's uh, true. Who, who who would have expect, who would have expected Fallen Enchantress not to be terrible? <laughs> who would have expected XCOM to be so good? To be honest, that's yeah, that's I true. Mean, I mean, and we already know that we have Rome Total War 2 coming out. We have Rogue River Cells 4 coming out. We have Company of Heroes 2 coming out and sometime. Like we have the LL, we have LL Alamein, and there's four games right there that are at least going to be better than average. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff that we didn't even know is coming. So I think 2013 is going to be rock solid. All right. And on that note, we will uh, leave you to enjoy the rest of this new year and we will be talking about strategy games uh, throughout it. Uh, look forward to seeing what happens over the next 12 months and uh, look forward to sharing those months with you. Uh, that'll do it for tonight's show. As always, uh, my thanks to our producer Michael Hermes for cutting this episode together and my thanks to uh, my panel and our guest Tom Chick for uh, appearing with me and uh, patiently waiting while I raced across Cambridge uh, to make it back from a football game uh, so I could uh, record this episode. Uh, so thanks, guys. Sorry I kept you waiting. Um, good luck to the Ravens, and uh, see you next week. Uh, say good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Hey, Mike. Good night. Go Anaheim Angels.